Hello everyone, hope your day is going well. Hope your summer is going well. It's uh, going too fast, that's for sure. It's hard to believe it's going to be uh, July already here, but hey, time moves on, huh? And uh, today we're going to go back in time. Hey, that's fitting. Uh, we're going to go look at uh, a historical figure who I honestly had never heard of until very recently. Uh, and But one who I think has quickly become probably one of my favorite characters in all of history. Just a very, very fascinating uh, person. Uh, I'm guessing you haven't heard of him either. He's not very well known, and he kind of was completely unknown for, for way too long. Uh, but we're going to talk today about a guy named Benjamin Lay. Yeah, you have no idea who that is, do you? <laughs> no. Well, I'll, I'm going to tell you about his life. And it's, like I said, this is this is probably one of the more entertaining life stories. Uh, although it's, it's also kind of horrific, some of the stuff he deals with. And I'll give you a warning ahead of time. It's, uh, there is... Some uncomfortable stuff coming up today. So Benjamin Lay was born uh, January 26 in uh, 1682. He was born in Copford, England. Born to a very modest family, a farming family that was farm country there in England. Um, you know, nothing really incredible. No, no, definitely not uh, born in a place where anybody would expect anything much of him uh, in life, especially because of, uh, well, he was born with some pretty serious uh, physical deformities. So even if he was born uh, to a king or something, he still would have had a lot going against him. Uh, he was a dwarf. Uh, as, as an adult, he was barely over four feet tall. Uh, he was also a hunchback. He has an extreme curvature of his spine, uh, which, of course, made him look even smaller than he already was. Uh, one account we have uh, of him from his life was, uh, and I'm going to just read to you directly what they said, uh, his head was large in proportion to his body. The features of his face were remarkable and boldly delineated, and his countenance was grave and benignant. His legs were so slender as to appear almost unequal to the purpose of supporting him, uh, diminutive as his frame. So just an odd, odd-looking character, uh, made so even more by the fact that as he, he aged, he grew a, a long beard, uh, and as he got older, it turned into white. So uh, for much of our story, I, I want you to imagine, uh, well, this is what he was. He was he was a four-foot hunchback with a long white beard. I mean, that's already quite the character, right? Uh, and yet he never let, you know, his status in life, his physical deformities, uh, stop him from from trying to achieve things uh, as, as a youth he worked as a farmham he worked as a shepherd uh, he was a hard worker he apprenticed for a while as a glove maker which he really didn't like uh, and then at uh, age 21 when he was all set to kind of take over the family farm he decided i, I don't want to do that either i don't want to be here so he runs off uh, and he learns to london and he becomes a sailor uh, and actually his, his small size was kind of an advantage for him in this he could get a lot of places where other people couldn't uh, and so he succeeded as a sailor. He was a, he was a great sailor, and he sailed the sea, saw much of the world uh, for twelve years. He was he was out on the open ocean, and he encountered a lot of diverse people. He encountered diverse uh, beliefs, and it's also here as a sailor that he hears for the first time stories of what's going to become the great kind of passion of his life, uh, slavery. He he hears of tales about slavery, and he sees slave ships, uh, and and really it's not something he'd ever encountered uh, himself. Uh, rural England really doesn't have slaves. Uh, that was even 
even in the cities in England, it would be very rare uh, to encounter slaves. Uh, this was something really that was reserved for the colonies. And England had plenty of slaves, plenty of slaves uh, in its colonies. Uh, but at this point in his life, he really hadn't uh, encountered it much. Now, an another uh, important part of, of his upbringing that becomes really important to our story later on is the fact that he was also uh, raised as a Quaker. Uh, now, the Quakers was a, a religious movement of, of this time, and it was an especially strong presence in, in the countryside where he was from there in England. Now, I don't want to get it's. I'm not going to get into all of Quakerism and try to explain it all. Uh, that's probably a good subject for another podcast, maybe on George Fox someday. But but it, it was this religious movement there in England. It was actually kind of a combination of different movements, really, that had been uh, bubbling up around this time period. Um, a well, a little before uh, the well, the time of, of Benjamin Lay here, before the six, early 1600s, really. Um, but really what it comes down to is this desire to kind of reform the church and society, this displeasure with what the church is, and, and really this big belief in inequality, right? They believed in what they called an inward light, this, this spark of the divine, the spark of God that, that resides in all people. And so they, they truly believed that, that everyone you looked at uh, had God in them, right? And so, uh, they're, they're, like I said, it was an equality thing in both society and in the church. So part of this is denouncing the rich and the wealthy, that they famously would refuse to remove hats for, you know, the people who you normally remove hats for, you know, nobility, uh, the rich and wealthy. Uh, they didn't care about that kind of status. And they also didn't care really about church hierarchy. And so they didn't believe in, in pastors or bishops or in those roles because all people had God in them. All people had the Holy Spirit and all people were able to teach and to preach. And so in their meetings, which is what they kind of called their church services, um, anyone who was a friend, that's the name they had for each other, the friends, anyone who was a friend was allowed to get up and talk as the Spirit moved. Right? And and they and that's how they would conduct their services. You know, multiple people would give up and give a message uh, as they were moved by the spirits, in, including women, which again was very radical for the time. I mean, it, it wasn't till the mid 1900s that most of the mainline denominations started uh, ordaining women and allowing them to have that privilege. But the Quakers were doing it here in the 1600s, so well before others. Right, so they were they were kind of known to be radical. That was part of what defined them. They like to shake up the status quo. They like to speak out against the powers of the world, um, and in, in doing so, that they believed that they were speaking the true words of Christ. And so, uh, that is what Lay was brought up in, and that's what he was used to. And he really took that to heart. He embraced that idea of equality and of, well, of anybody being able to speak up and of, uh, of declaring what they believed to be Christ's tr true words, intentions of what they believed the Spirit was saying through them. And so Lay was uh, quite often was known as someone who would speak up uh, in, in their meetings uh, and speak out. He would challenge the beliefs of other Quakers, right? He was, he was a man of just a, a incredibly high moral standard that he held himself to, and he tried to hold everybody else to it as well. And so amongst the group of radicals, he was a radical amongst the radicals, right? And he was known for speaking out, and he was uh, known for really, really taking it to people, and, and he was known for being a troublemaker, which gets him in trouble. He wasn't well-liked uh, uh, amongst the Quakers in England where he was. Uh, but not everybody didn't like him because he finds love uh, in his life. A woman named Sarah Smith, 
who was a dwarf like himself, uh, and she was a, a very admired preacher in the Quaker community, which is again, the only community in, really in the world that you could be a, a dwarf woman and, and be considered highly of. Uh, but she was, and uh, and her and, and Benjamin fall in love, and, and in 1718, they're, they're married. Uh, and as uh, this new married couple, and as Benjamin is not well respected and is kind of getting sick of butting up against people, uh, they decide to, uh, to head off to a new life together. And so uh, they go to uh, Barbados to become shopkeepers. Now, when we think of Barbados, we think of, you know, this island in the Caribbean, this beautiful getaway place. Uh, but what they found there was, was anything but beautiful. They probably were hoping that's what they'd find, but that isn't what was there. Uh, because at this point in history, Barbados was pretty much just one big slave colony. It was it was kind of the center of of slavery uh, in the New World, uh, and it was it, it was a horrific horrific version uh, of slavery uh, as well. I mean, th- there is no place really. There's no place uh, at this point in time that slavery was worse than on Barbados. It it was the epitome of everything that was wrong. I mean, slavery in itself was really wrong, but this is this is the epitome of it. This is like as bad as it got. Right. And so Barbados was really it was filled with all these sugar plantations, which is what they discovered grew really well there. And so all of these wealthy people, they bought land, they brought plantations um, and they brought in slaves to work them. Right. And so from its founding as a colony in 1627 until the slave trade was ended officially in England in 1807. So during that that span of time. Uh, over 300,000 Africans were brought there to work the plantations. I, some estimates even put it up to half a million. Right? So a lot, a lot of slaves were brought here. Uh, so many that they quickly outgrew the the white population. I mean, there were way more slaves there than slave owners, than slave masters. Um, one figure I saw said that in, in 1750, there were about 18,000 white settlers and 65,000 African slaves. So so you can already see there's an issue here, right? When you have that many more slaves than people who are trying to keep the slaves in line, there's a there's a real problem. There's a concern here, right? The slaves could if they wanted to, if they figured it out, easily overpower their masters. And so on Barbados, they knew, and they were very well aware of this problem, so they knew that the solution was to just beat these people into submission, to keep them so downtrodden, to keep them so hurt, to keep them so starved, to keep them so weakened that they wouldn't have the ability to fight back. Right? And so that's what was happening on Barbados. Right? Slaves were just treated brutally harsh. They, they were starved. They were barely fed anything. Uh, most of them were, were beaten regularly just as part of the process. Many of them were killed if they even dared do anything that they thought was out of line. Uh, and, and it was just, it was such a hard life that even if, you know, they weren't killed, they were dying just very regularly. Uh, you know, they were drinking lead quite often. In fact, that was done intentionally uh, often as a way to kind of subdue the people. Um, it was kind of just expected there. If you're a slave owner, that you were going to lose maybe a fifth to even up to a fourth of your workforce every year to death. That's how many people were dying there every year. And you would just need to replace them. You know, it's kind of like next 
in the spring, you gotta go go get a new batch of slaves to replace all the ones that died last year. Right? It was it, that's that's the way they were acting. That's the way they were treating these human beings. Right? And so it was it was a horrific experience. You know, with that incredibly that low life expectancy, and it was an incredibly brutal life while you were there. In fact, for many people, death was was welcomed because it was better than the life they were living as a slave. Um, that's actually something that Lay witnessed himself. He, one of the the young slave men who he ends up befriending uh, commits suicide, kills himself because he'd rather die than have to to go face his Monday whipping, which was a part of just his weekly routine. So he killed himself on a Sunday evening. Right? And so this is the world that that Benjamin Lay and and his wife Sarah that they uh, that they come into in Barbados. This is what they encounter. I don't think they were ready for it at all. And they are they are shocked by the brutality of it all. And, and worse yet, what they're really shocked by is that the people carrying this out are Christians. In fact, many of them are Quakers, right? Which are these people who are all about equality, right? Who every person has the divine spark. So how could someone who's a Quaker, who believes that every human being has a has God in them, treating people in this brutal fashion? Right? And Lay sees the, his, his fellow Quakers doing it. There's a story of... Of um, Benjamin and Sarah, they're going to to supper at a friend's house, a fellow Quaker. And as they approach the house, there in, in a tree, just right outside the house, there is is tied up by his wrists a slave, a black man. He's tied up to this tree. He's hanging there. There's blood dripping down his legs, pooling under his body. He's been brutally whipped and beaten. And they go into the house, and they and, and Benjamin just kind of lets it out. Like, what are you doing? What, how can you treat a human being this way? And he's just told quite bluntly, well, what else would you have me do? He tried to run away. This is what you do. It, it's really hard for us, I think, modern people to wrap our minds around how horrific this was and how widespread this was and how accepted this was. Uh, slavery, I mean, for us, clearly slavery is is, is just evil. I mean, there, there's no good in slavery. There's no way to justify it. But, but in that time, in that age, I mean, it was it was justifiable, right? That I, it's human beings have this amazing ability to convince ourselves something evil is is okay as long as we benefit from it, right? There's we're really good at the mental gymnastics to justify horrific acts, and that's what people were doing at this time. So how could a Quaker of all people, one who believed in this divine light of God shining in all people, how could they treat others in such a horrific way? Well, you just convince yourself that black people aren't really people. You just, right? The divine light of God is in all human beings. Well, these aren't human beings. These are animals. These are, these are beneath human beings. These are lesser. That's how you, that's how you can do it. And maybe you're not a Quaker. Maybe you don't go that route. But maybe you just... I mean, this was a, a very common Christian argument. Well, maybe you think, you convince yourself, well, I'm actually doing them a favor, right? They're barbarians. They're savages from Africa. We're bringing them over here and we're civilizing them. And sure, they have to be slaves to get it, but we're teaching them about Christ. We're teaching them about modern life. We're, we're showing them what it is to be part of a civilized society. That's what they would tell themselves, to justify it. You know, they'd look at the Bible. Well, I mean, slavery's in the Bible, and it's okay. I mean, the people there had slaves. Now, it was a very, very different form of slavery than what they're practicing. But, you know, hey, it's, it's okay if it's in the Bible. It was, just, it was just generally accepted. 
by pretty much all of society that this was just a, a necessity, right? That this is how life had to work. And that for them to have, you know, the, well, the products they wanted, to them to have sugar, for them to have tobacco, for them to have cotton, they needed slaves. There was no other way around it. Or maybe they just didn't think about it, right? Maybe you just ignore it completely. You know, you, you go and you put your, you have your cup of uh, tea with your sugar in the morning and you stuff your pipe with the tobacco and you just don't even want to know where it came from or how it got to you. I mean, that's actually pretty relatable. We do that modern day with a lot of our products, unfortunately. Uh, you know, stuff made in sweatshops in China. And I don't even want to get into the, the brutality of what has to happen for your cell phone to be made. Uh, and you don't want to know either because it's it's better to be ignorant of that stuff than we don't have to acknowledge the atrocities that are happening around the world. And there's still atrocities happening around the world. But that was the mindset people had. Like I said, there was nobody really questioning it. I shouldn't say nobody. There were there were small, small pockets of people questioning, but not not in mass. For the most part, everybody just kind of accepted this is the way it works, and it's okay to to treat other human beings like this because they're well, they're beneath us. They're Africans. They're slaves. They're black. They're not as good as us white Europeans. Lay though was not buying any of this, right? He wasn't. He could not justify slavery to himself. He couldn't justify how anyone else could be, uh, it, well, embrace this, accept this, how anyone could take part in this, especially a Quaker, especially his fellow friends. And so he begins to, to just be a vocal critic of the entire institution. Right? And he would start going to the Quaker meetings. And again, anybody can get up and talk. And he would get up and he'd give impassioned speeches against slavery. And he would confront known slaveholders and, and hold them to it and say, how can you, as a, as a follower of Christ, own another human being? How can you treat another human being this way? But people didn't want to hear that. Right? He, wasn't, he didn't make any friends with these speeches. And he certainly didn't convince anybody to give up their slaves. Uh, he made a lot of enemies doing it, and and he made other enemies because not only was he was he being a vocal critic of what was happening, but he was actively kind of working against it. His his little shop that him and and Sarah were running became just kind of the safe haven for slaves. They would come in there. He'd give them food. He'd give them medicine. You know, these are people who are trying to actively deprive them of this to keep them weak, and now he's giving it to them to help make their lives better. And so again, people are displeased by that. And so. Uh, he becomes very hated in the Barbados, and, and finally he has enough of, of kind of butting his head up against this wall and of having to witness these atrocities and of having people attack him and come at him. Um, and so he just leaves. After two years, he leaves Barbados. He goes back to England, uh, back to his home community, where he still isn't well-liked already because he was the radical who was always getting in their faces. And now, again, he's got a whole new set of stuff to, to get in their faces. I mean, he brings up slavery there, too, because how are we allowing this to happen? This is going out on, out in the world. Why aren't we doing anything about this? Uh, <laughs> and so, again, people are, are very upset at him. He gets disliked. He's hated. He's kind of shunned. Uh, and so he has enough of trying it there, and he, and he says, okay, let, I'm going to go to some place where people are going to listen, and there's going to be others like me who are against this, this, this evil. And he decides, I'm going to go to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the United, well, it's not the United States, yeah, no, in the colonies, right? The city of brotherly love, though, right? This is also the city kind of founded by William Penn, you know, by this group of Quakers, right? And so he, and he hears about this as kind of a Quaker haven, 
And so in his mind, he's like, these are going to be truly religious people. These are going to be devout Quakers who know how evil this is. These are going to be, you know, people who are on my side and who I can relate with. And maybe together we can, we can do something about this. Uh, and so him and, and Sarah, again, they head off uh, to, to the colonies, to, to Pennsylvania. And he gets into Philadelphia. And you know what he finds? A lot of slaves. That's what he finds. He finds a lot of slaves. Right? Now, it's a very different slavery than what he saw in Barbados. It's not nearly as brutal, and it's uh, it's not like the big slave plantations. It's not thousands and thousands. But the, the city is filled with slaves yet. With you know, It's filled with people owning people and treating them like property. And you can go to the market, and you can buy a young slave kid. Right? It, it's still horrific to lay. Right? And again, he sees Quakers, his own people, these people he was so optimistic would be better. They're owning slaves. In fact, all the leaders of, of the Quaker church, uh, they were slave owners. So he's very disheartened by this, but it doesn't stop him. So once again, he's like, well, I guess I'll try it here. <laughs> right? So once again, he starts going to, to interrupt uh, to Quaker gatherings. He starts denouncing the practice of slavery, denouncing wealthy Philadelphia slave owners. Uh, he quickly makes a lot of enemies. He starts calling them, you know, you're lazy and ungodly people who allow uh, the black man to do all your work for you while you sit back and relax and do nothing. Um, he has no fear. Right? He's got this high moral code and it kicks into gear again and uh, and this time he, he starts taking it even further than he ever had before. Right? He, he's so just so certain of the evils of slavery. And I think he's just so tired of everywhere he goes. Nobody listens and everybody's okay with it. And so he, he begins not just publicly speaking against it, but doing these grand acts of, of public protest. And really this is kind of revolutionary. It's the first time we really see somebody do to, like these public acts like he did. Uh, these big showman events to to kind of protest what's happening. Um, so, like, here's an example. He, he showed up at the yearly Quaker assembly. They have a big assembly once a year. They make a lot of business decisions and stuff. And he shows up there, and he has three tobacco pipes kind of concealed in his clothing. And right, at, right when the assembly finishes the business and they're done, he stands up, and he yells out, you know, slave labor's providing this tobacco and it's evil. And he just starts smashing these pipes against the seats and, you know, the, they splinter and fly all over. Uh, again, he makes a big spectacle. Uh, that winter, when winter arrives, he he goes to a meeting, a, a Quaker meeting, and he gets there plenty early and before other people get there, and uh, he just stands outside waiting. But he stands outside waiting with one of his legs and his foot completely exposed to the elements. And there's snow on the ground. It's the middle of winter uh, in Pennsylvania. It's cold, you know, it's, it's freezing temperatures. And as people enter the meeting, they tell him over and over again, but, you know, what are you doing? You're, you're freezing. Your foot's going to get frostbite. Come inside, get warm. And he responds, oh, you, know, you have concern for me, but not for your slaves who work all winter, have clothed. He's trying to make a point. If you're going to be concerned for me, you should have the same concern for your slaves. They're people too. Uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite stories is is a, a meeting he attends, and again, anyone can stand up and speak, uh, and many people do. But every time, every time someone gets up and begins talking, uh, Benjamin Lay stands up, points at them, and just yells, "Look, another Negro master!" <laughs> you can imagine how old uh, that guy. Uh, again, it, these displays don't don't work as well as he's hoped. Um, really, they're not 
convinced that you know slavery is evil they're becoming more and more convinced that that lay is a nuisance at, at best if not a madman <laughs> at worst um so you know he starts being banned from attending meetings I actually form a little group to try to to keep him out to physically keep him out uh, but you know that doesn't let him stop him he keeps going in uh, nothing really let's that's the thing about benjamin like he doesn't let anything stop him he doesn't care how mad people get he doesn't get who tries to stop him he doesn't care what threats he gets he doesn't care how many friends he alienates nothing 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 convinces him to stop uh and so he just keeps going to these meetings there's a story about one time where he goes in the meeting you know they kick him out they toss him outside so he goes and, and lays in front of the door it's a rainy night the rain's been pouring all day um it's just pure mud in front of the door so he just lays in front of the door uh in the mud and people to get out of the meeting they have to walk over him because he refuses to move and so over and over people just step over him to leave the building and you know again this is him pointing out you're stepping over me like you step over the plight of the slaves um so stunt after stunt like this uh, another one where he um he became very adamant about the evils of sugar and about how he shouldn't be using sugar. He actually calls for a boycott on sugar. One of, really one of the first people calling for boycotts of anything. Uh, you know, making claims that, well, that every time you eat sugar, you're eating the blood and bones of a slave because in the process of refining the sugar, they go through these great meals, mills. And he says, you know, slaves are falling in there. They're dying. They're losing arms. Right? When you're having sugar, you're you're digesting them. And, Right? And he's trying to horrify people uh, through this, and it is horrific to think about. Um, and it, there probably was some truth in that, too. I mean, that was food processing techniques back then were known to have. It was not that rare to get human body parts and stuff on occasion. Um, and so he would, again, a, a grand spectacle one day. He went out with his all of his wife's kind of dishware, all of her, her tea set, and he just starts smashing it in the middle of town. And people are <laughs> kind of appalled by this. Like, what What are you doing? That's like good china. Don't smash that. And uh, they like pleading with him, sell it to me. Give it to me if you want to get rid of it. But, he, but his point is, look, every time you drink tea, you put sugar in it. This sugar is evil. So if you're going to have sugar with your tea, you can't have tea. And he's smashing this tea set. Eventually, they actually restrain him and quickly rush away the rest of the, the tea set before he can destroy it all. I don't know why they're so horrified by smashing a tea set. But, but again, it proves his points. You know, you're more concerned about this tea set than you are about the human lives that are being killed so you can enjoy this tea. He's not wrong. Um, he does go too far with his stunts, though, I, I think you could easily say. Uh, at one point, he kidnaps a child. Right? He takes his neighbor's son. Um, and his, when his, na his neighbor was away from home, he, he takes him, takes him back home. He takes good care of him. I mean, it's not like he was trying to hurt the kid. But, but he takes him. And so when his father returns home, he can't find his son. He panics. He's, you know, he's just looking everywhere. He's in a frantic. He's yelling. Uh, and Lay lets this go on for a while until eventually he walks over and says, oh, oh, I have your son. He's right here. You know, you can come to my house and get him. He's fine. But, but, he tells him, now you know what African parents go through. Because it was common practice for slave masters to take the children of their slaves and sell them off. Right? And so families were often split up. A parent could have a child taken from them at any point and sold somewhere else. And they never see them again. And Lay says, now you know what they go through. And this is just for, for an afternoon you experience it. Imagine what these parents have to deal with for the rest of their lives. I mean, again, he's not wrong, but yeah, you can't take kids. You can't kidnap people. 
Eventually, though, you know, people just, they, they do. They have enough of him. He, he is really officially banned from meetings. He's removed as a member of good standing, which kind of was a big deal for him. Um, you know, in that Quaker circle, a member of goods, you know, they would send letters to each other as if he transferred to a new church, which he has to do shortly because he gets kicked out of Philadelphia and has to move uh, to a town called Abington. Um, and when he moves, you know, he tries to go to the Quaker meeting there and they send a letter to Philadelphia asking, you know, to transfer him over. And he's, they're like, yeah, no, no, this is not a member in good standing. This is not a guy you want to belong. But yeah, again, they, but part of their belief system is that equality thing. Anybody's invited to come to these, these meetings. And so in Abington, they, they do allow him to, to start coming. Um, and, and he's not long there after moving to Abington. It's just North of Philadelphia. He didn't really go that far. Um, and, and after he moves there, uh, tragedy strikes. It's it's 1735, and Sarah becomes sick and dies. Uh, Leah is devastated by this, obviously. He actually blames the Quaker leaders uh, for it, saying that, you know, they were so harsh to, to him and to her uh, that it, it caused her so much grief that she couldn't go on, uh, that it was their fault, um, which probably wasn't that true. Actually, they, they still thought very highly of Sarah. Um and, you know, he wasn't a member in good standing. She still was. She wasn't nearly uh, as abrasive as he was. Um, but but that was also an important part of, of him. You know, she was a constant source of comfort and, and of support and of compassion to him. And now uh, with her gone, he doesn't he doesn't have that. And so it's a, it's just it's a devastating blow to him. He truly loved her and she loved him and they had a beautiful life together and so now with her gone and he doesn't have that um that source of love in his life he doesn't have that source of kind of compassion or something to soften him down a little bit maybe uh he he really really goes hard at his efforts i mean not that he wasn't going hard before but now he has nothing besides this passion for his work um at this point he's now living in a cave uh, outside of abington um yeah so yeah again we're talking about a four-foot hunchback with a long white beard who lives in a cave. He is as eccentric as you can get. Um, oddly enough, uh, inside his cave, he has an amazing library. He loves to read. He's been compiling a library of books. He's probably one of the best libraries in the whole area and maybe all of Pennsylvania uh, at this point. I mean, it's an extensive library. He loves to read. Um, and now... It, he kind of get inspired by that, by some of the works he's been reading, and and he realized, you know, I'm he's not well liked in meeting places, and even though he's still going and still trying, but but he thinks, you know what, I'm not been getting through to people this way, so maybe I'll write a book, and so for two years, uh, he writes a book, a book he entitles, "All Slave Keepers That Keep the Innocent in Bondage, Apostates." Admittedly, not the greatest title in the world, uh, but. And, and really, it's not a great book. It's it's pretty rambling. It's kind of, it's it's really all over the place. It's just it's a collection of all kinds of different ideas that had been running through his head. Um, I mean, he tells a lot of his own story, a lot of the stuff he saw down in Barbados. Um, but ultimately, all right, the core of the book is is this this scathing attack against really any Christian, but especially Quakers, who, who keep slaves. He he says in in this book, you know, all slave owners bear the mark of the beast, that they embody Satan on earth, that they must be cast out of the church, right? That that no Christian 
who keeps a slave can call themselves a Christian, that they are apostates, right? They're former Christians. They're not real Christians, right? and they cannot be treated as such. It's, it's a very harsh, very scathing critique of slavery as an institution, but especially of those Christians who own slaves, right? There, there is no place for them in Christianity, in the church, uh, at all, according to Lay. Right? They, they are not Christians. They are purely evil. They are Satan, right? And so, again, it's, it's harsh. And you can imagine, you know, the Quaker leadership was not going to, to like this book. I mean, uh, he calls not just, you know, he calls for them to be tossed out of the church, of, of their leadership position, of to lose everything. So he has a hard time finding a publisher because, you know, you have a book, but a book doesn't do you any good unless you can get it published and people can read it. Uh, and his Quaker friends are, are influential and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to let any publisher in Philadelphia uh, print that, uh, except there's one. Right? Luckily, Benjamin Lay had befriended a local printer while in Philadelphia. Uh, you might have heard of this guy. You probably didn't hear of Benjamin Lay, but you've heard of this one. Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, that Benjamin Franklin. I bet you did not see that coming, did you? Him and Benjamin Lay were close friends. They really were. Right? Benjamin Franklin regularly visited Lay's cave and had discussion with him. In fact, uh, Benjamin Franklin's wife actually commissions a painting of Lay, uh, and it's, uh, it's still around. You can see it. You can find it on Google. It gives us this great visual of this, you know, this eccentric guy I'm telling you about. It's, it's kind of this very interesting visual of what he looked like. Uh, it's great. You should look it up. <laughs> go find it on Google. Just uh, go look for it. Uh, but it's the, only, it's the only visual we have of him from his life. Obviously, he wasn't that important of a figure other than that. But, but Benjamin Franklin, who was an important figure, who could may have portraits made, you know, he gets one made. And he also prints his book. So in 1738, Benjamin Franklin prints uh, this book, this harsh critique of slave owners and really of anybody who, who kind of acknowledges and allows slavery. Uh, and it gets distributed amongst Philadelphia, amongst the colonies, and it even gets back to England. People read it. Right? And he, he, is, he is slowly but surely gaining a, a small following. Right? It's that same year in 1738 that he does what's probably uh, his best known and probably largest kind of grandest stunt. Um, he goes once again to the yearly meeting of the Quakers in Philadelphia. Uh, how they're still, how he gets in, I really don't know. I don't get it. Uh, but he gets in. He comes in dressed in this large overcoat. Uh, and during kind of the middle of the meeting, he stands up, goes out into the center. He rips off his overcoat uh, to reveal that he is wearing a full military uniform underneath, including a sword, right? And he unsheaths his sword, and he takes out this book in his other hand and the sword in his one hand, this book that looks very similar to a Bible. Some sources say it was a Bible. Some are, are uncertain. We really don't know what it was. But this large book... Uh, and he thrusts the sword into the book. Now, inside this book, he has hollowed it out. Right? And he took a, a bladder, and he filled it with pokeberry juice, which is this bright red liquid. So as he stabs the book, he pierces the bladder, and out shoots this pokeberry juice, which looks very much like blood. And it just shoots out of this book and spews all over the nearby onlookers. And as he does this, he yells out, Thus shall God shed the blood of those persons who enslave their fellow creatures. 
I mean, what a stunt. What a display, right? Like, people had to have just been sitting back, like, taking it in awe of what, what, like, what just happened? Right, so, yeah, uh, he gets kicked out. <laughs> and not just of the meeting. Uh, this this was it. I mean, between the book uh, and now this, he is, he is kicked out of Quakerism entirely. He's disowned uh, by the Quakers and removed uh, from the church. One of the very few people in the history uh, of the Quakers to ever receive this treatment. Uh, but, of course, that doesn't stop him. Right? Nothing, nothing stops him. Uh, he keeps showing up. He keeps arguing. Um, and yet, you know, as time goes on here, um, he does begin to recede from, from the public. You know, this was kind of his last hurrah, in a way. Um, you know, he's still very adamant against slavery. He's still very adamant that, you know, the slaves are human beings, that they have God in them, that God loves them, that they should not be treated as such. Um, he's as radical as ever in his beliefs, but he's getting older, right? Um, he he start, starts staying at home more, staying in his cave more. He starts becoming more of a, a proponent for a new natural way of living. He starts getting into other issues besides slavery. Uh, by this point, he's um, refusing to eat meat. He's actually been not eating meat for most of his life. Um, he, he is, I mean, he takes the same belief that the divine is in all people to the divine is in all animals, and God is a part of all animals as well, and so he can't justify killing anything, including an animal. So he eats only fruits and vegetables, and he's uh, kind of trying to teach people this way of life and in a way he's kind of becomes like really one of the world's first vegans uh, this is he's again he's he's kind of ahead of his time in most of what uh he's trying to uh to give to the world um again he's also arguing about boycotting sugar and tobacco and any uh well, any product used by slavery and he's telling people to do that and and he's he's he is getting more and more people to kind of listen. You know, people will come out to hear him. Um, there's now Quakers who are also, other Quakers who are taking up his argument. Uh, he's not alone in this, which he was for much of his life. Um, you know, his work is accomplishing something. Uh, it really is. I mean, he has not persuaded the, the leaders. They don't like him. They still think he's a madman. But there are people who who do listen. Um, and so as he gets older and as he, he, he kind of withdraws from public life, his, his arguments uh, start getting taken out, by, out into the assemblies, into the meetings, into the world by other people. Um, it's now 1758. You know, this is uh, well towards the end of his life. His health is rapidly declining. Um, and one day he gets, he gets a visit from one of these young men who he inspired one of these few Quakers who are out there also trying to, to end slavery. And this young man comes to him and he informs him of this growing movement that, right, that, that this anti-slavery sentiment is really, really taking helm, uh, taking hold in the midst of the Quaker people. Right? The church is starting to change, is starting to reform so much so right, that here in Philadelphia at the yearly meeting here in 1758, yearly meeting that that yearly meeting he so often disrupted the one that 20 years before he did his grand stunt it was decided to ban the buying and selling of slaves by quakers and formally discipline any quaker who did right? now slavery as 
itself was still allowed. If you own slaves, you could keep owning slaves, but you can't buy new ones, and you can't sell them anymore. They banned the buying and selling of slavery, and this was the first step to what would become the end of slavery amongst Quakers and really the end of slavery in, in England. And upon hearing this, Lay remained silent for a, a couple minutes, and then he stood up and just exclaimed, Thanksgiving and praise rendered unto the Lord God. I can now die in peace. Which he does. He does a year later, in 1759. He was 77 years old. Uh, he was buried in an unmarked grave. We don't know where it is. Um, and then he was kind of largely forgotten by history. So much so that, so that that painting I told you about earlier, uh, that actually was bought at an auction in 1977 for $4. Because nobody knew who Benjamin Lay was or cared. Right? That just that tells you how he was remembered. It's really until very recently that historians have begun... Uh, to kind of lift him up out of, uh, well, the forgotten realms of history and give him some of the credit he deserves. And, and he deserves a lot of credit. Uh, he was someone who was so passionate uh, for the way we treat others, right? which is the heart of Christianity. To love others uh, as you, to, lo well, to love your neighbor as yourself, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, to, to, to see everyone as worthy of love, uh, that that's what Lay was all about, to see God in everyone, to see Christ in everyone. And he was one of the first people to really, really publicly declare that slavery as an institution was not that, right? that slavery was the opposite of what Christ taught, that slavery was evil, and that Christians could not be partaking in this activity. And he did it with a passion that really, I, I will say, was unmatched by any. He did it with a conviction that was so strong that he refused to back down. He worked tirelessly to f see his, his fellow man treated with love and respect, to see slavery ended, which again, unfortunately, he didn't get to see, but he saw the first fruits of it. He saw something come of his work. He was a, a true Christian, someone who truly embodied the teachings of Christ in a time where so many found ways to get around that found ways to ignore the teachings of Christ for their own benefit. He refused. He refused. And for that, he should be, he should be remembered, given a lot of credit. Right? He was one of the first abolitionists. Um, and I think, really, I mean, he was forgotten in history, and he's not raised up as one of the great abolitionists, but, but who knows what would have happened without his impact, without somebody like Benjamin Lay out there first, uh, kind of breaking the ground. Someone who refused to back down, someone who refused to be silent, someone who went out to outlandish means to get his message across sometime, uh, but, but means that were necessary to get people to listen. He was a truly remarkable character, uh, and I hope you can uh, be as motivated by his story as I am. You know, I really, I respect Benjamin Lay so much, uh, and, and to stand up for what you believe in when no one else believes it is is tremendous when you believe in something so firmly that you know is right that you refuse to back down that's that's really what uh so much of christianity is is all about i mean that's what jesus and the early disciples and the early christians all did and, and it's something that unfortunately becomes all too easy for us not to do to just go with the flow and go with the status quo and not want to to shake things up uh 
So maybe we could be a little more like Benjamin Lay. I think I probably could be a little bit more <laughs> like Benjamin Lay in life sometimes. I think we all could. So so that's the story of Benjamin Lay. Uh, a truly fantastic character. So uh, until next time, I uh, hope you have a good one. Take care. Bye.